The Guardian. Festival Hall and the South Bank are heaving. There are people milling about everywhere. The orchestra is just tuning up. The river bank is full of people. The sun, for once in this weird summer, is shining. I'm here on the doorstep of the Roi des Belges, Conrad's boat, which has become mysteriously moored on top of the Queen Elizabeth Hall, giving the writers who are cast adrift here for a few days each. A most amazing view of London where they can hear the clatter and the noise and the music and the sounds of the South Bank and the city just below and yet they're magically separate from it like a seagull or God with one of the best views in London at the moment of a river police boat going by and a helicopter overhead. Michael Ondaatje is the poet, critic and novelist born in Sri Lanka schooled in Dulwich College before he moved to Canada to join his brother, Sir Christopher Ondaatje, the multi-millionaire philanthropist who has endowed pretty much every arts institution in London. There's hardly a big arts building in London that doesn't have an Ondaatje wing somewhere. He's lived in Canada ever since and is now a Canadian citizen. His novel, The English Patient, won the Booker Prize and became an Oscar-winning movie. And another of his novels, Anil's Ghost, set in his native Sri Lanka, was also garlanded with prizes, including the International Literature Prize from my old paper, The Irish Times. He's got his time now in this magical space, this cabin on top of the world, to write and think. And he says he has just a ghost of an idea, like a letter slipped under a door for a new piece of work. Michael, I suspect people think of you not as a watery writer, but as a writer of dust and sand. And I wish that I could say that was because of your books, but I suspect it's because of the movie. People have fixed in their heads that what you do is deserts. Are you a rivery man as well? And is this river important to you? Well, I am definitely a rivery man. You know, I, I lived in England in my teens, and I would cross this river all the time so to go to school. So this has been a very important part of my landscape as a teenager growing up but suddenly in Canada I'm very even more rivery and swim in rivers and canoe and so forth so I'm closer to rivers than deserts. It's a strange space here because you're so close to people but you're so cut off from them and I think there's something well I thought it was almost divine it's almost like God's view of London but also perhaps a bit lonely. You are kind of on on a level with kind of high-flying birds and you know the top of the Savoy and so forth so um, and and the roof of the Royal Festival Hall. So it does feel very separate, but actually it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely bird's eye view of the city. So in that sense, it's, it's kind of great. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people who loves maps, so you are looking at a map of the city. There are maps and there's history in all of your books and many of your poems. And the river is really, a, it is a map of history, isn't it? Of, of not just of London, but of Europe of its day. Very much so. I mean, there, you know, there are also wonderful books out. You know, there's a great book by... Uh, I think McGreece about the Danube and the history of the Danube, which is one of the great histories of Europe, actually. There have been a few London Thames books, but you know, there's room on the shelf for another one. Will you will you write something London while you're here? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think I, I, I don't think I'll, a river book anyway. But uh, no, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in the whole idea of how people arrived in England. You know, I'm mean, I'm someone who arrived from 
Sri Lanka and landed in Tilbury. So I think that's one of the things I'd like to talk about today, you know, the, the whole the idea of arrival and, and departure. Did you come by boat? I came by boat when I was a kid, yeah. Was it an appalling shock? It was a shock to land here. The, the shock wasn't the journey, but, you know, I think suddenly, you know, all your social rules were different. So I think that was very different for me. What moved you on again? What took the family on to Canada when you might have stayed in London ever since, I suppose? I, my brother was had, had moved to uh, Canada already, and he said that it was a great place. And I, I, I guess I was a bit lost. I didn't know what I would do when I finished school, you know. And uh, so it was a case of uh, trusting him, and I'm, in a way, very glad I did. I, you know, I became what I may not have become if I had stayed here. Do you still... Take boat journeys. I know some writers actually love travelling by boat. Indeed, I know some who have pitched to be writers in residence on boats just because they like that slow travel thing of time to think and to work out where you're going and what the world is doing. Well, I mean, uh, the last book I wrote, The Cat's Table, really was about that journey I took by ship from Sri Lanka to England in, in the 1950s. You know, it, I mean, it's a fictional version of it, but that's what I did. So that was kind of the last real boat journey I took. So I, I love, you know, if you're in the Mediterranean, to take one of those you know, ships back and forth. Those are wonderful. Have you enjoyed your time here? Oh, very much so, yes. You know, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience because it's such an unusual concept you know, of having this boat that was Conrad's, you know, Marlowe's boat in the, on the Congo, well, miraculously brought and put on top of the Royal Festival Hall, like something from some very strange Kansas movie or something, I think. But uh, no, having Michael kind of come up with this idea about a year or so ago, and I think that's that's when he talked to me about it, was um, enthralling and a bit nerve-wracking because I often can't write to order, and so I I, I hesitated and worried about it a bit. But it's really brought out a lot of stuff that I, I probably wanted to write about. Well, we'll now look forward to hearing your exit essay, which, if you didn't manage to write, could be um, several minutes of blank paper. We'll see. This is Michael Ondaatje, it's late June 2012, and this is called A Port Accent. As a boy between the ages of 11 and 18, I crossed the Thames every day on my way to school in South London. And during the summers for two years, I had a job at Battersea Funfair on the South Bank, working in a 40s restaurant or in one of their booths near the Big Dipper. So this river was a constant in my new life in England though at that time we were living in Fulham, rather than here, where I am now, in this recreation of Conrad's fictional steamer, the Roi de Belge, that has just been fictionally transported all the way from the Congo, so that it now overlooks the very heart of London's wealth and power. Then, a few years ago, a friend took me on his skiff along the Thames. We went east towards the Thames estuary, so I could once again see the Tilbury docks where I had landed in the 1950s, a boy from Sri Lanka, in order to go to school in England. I was in the middle of researching that journey by ship and my arrival in England, and that afternoon coming upon it by boat from the city on a rainy afternoon, Tilbury looked a small, insignificant place. 
It had none of the grandeur I imagined it should have been the entrance to England for so many visitors and immigrants. Though I realize in retrospect that gateways to great countries often downplay their wealth. Immigrants to Canada arriving in Halifax had to walk almost a mile in order to formally enter the country. It seemed an intentional humiliation. Now, as we drifted a mile or so before Tilbury, large ships seemed to be grazing in the distance, preparing to dock. They were most likely container ships, my friend told me, rather than passenger ships from Asia. In any case, when I came to write about my arrival at Tilbury as a boy, it would feel, above all, an undramatic event. This is what I wrote. We slipped into England in the dark. After all our weeks at sea, we were unable to witness our entrance into the country. Just a pilot barge, blinking its blue light, was waiting at the entrance of the estuary and guided us alongside a dark, unknown shoreline into the Thames. There was a sudden smell of land. When the dawn eventually lit whatever was around us, it seemed a humble place. We saw no green river banks or famous cities or great spanning bridges that might open up their two arcs to let us through. Everything we were passing seemed a remnant from another industrial time. Jetties, saltings, the entrances to dredge canals. We passed tankers and mooring buoys. We searched for the heraldic ruins we had learned about a thousand miles away in a history class in Colombo. We saw a spire. Then suddenly we were in a place full of names, Southend, Chapman, Blythe Sands, Lower Hope, Sean Mead. Our ship gave four short blasts. There was a pause, then another blast, and we began to angle gently against the dock at Tilbury. The Aronze, my ship, that had been for weeks like a great order around us, finally rested. Further upriver, deeper inland in this eastern cut of the Thames, were Greenwich and Henley, that we had stopped now, finished with engines. After all the vast seas, here was a small, unpainted terminal building on the Thames. Tilbury now feels like a name lost to history. But this was where so many had landed, coming from Asia, Australia, the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, and Europe. Gandhi arrived here in 1888, two years after the docks were built, Tagore in 1912, Sam Selvon in the 1950s, Joseph Kozaniowski arrived in England in 1878, barely knowing anyone for 15 years until he met Edward Garnett in 1894 and changed his name to Joseph Conrad. He too lived for years in solitude, a lonely Londoner, speaking with a heavy foreign accent he would have all his life. After an hour or so, my friend and I began the 25-mile journey on the skiff from this deserted industrial zone back to the center of London. In two hours, we were looking up at a grander planet, the Palace of Westminster, Tower Bridge, Victoria Tower. But this, as Conrad Marlowe announces suddenly in Heart of Darkness, also has been one of the dark places of the Earth. We are never told what books Marlowe reads. It feels to us as if all his knowledge of human nature comes from meeting people and from geographical and social realities he witnesses around him. One assumes Marlowe reads, of course. He appears to be a literate man. He has a good turn of phrase. Yet in the end, what frees Conrad's books 
is a strange, complete lack of reference to any literary or artistic or even specific political allusions of a particular time. No de Maupassant, not even Flaubert's historical novel Salambo, that Conrad had studied carefully as a writer, not even his contemporary Henry James, books which Marlowe could have lost himself in when abandoned on those long nights at sea or in some foreign port. What did Marlowe do during those evenings? Was he just listening to others or retelling and fine-tuning those potent anecdotes about lives he'd witnessed? Someone once mentioned the phrase port accents to me, and the idea of the existence of such a thing hovered in the air while I was writing my novel about a sea journey. Now and then the ship I was writing about would dock at Aden or Portside, and the talk in those ports would not be so much the language of the country, but a language based on commerce and transport. It would be speedy and efficient, a casually invented informal Esperanto, a lingo, that did not involve translation so much as a crashing together of nouns and phrases, like the commentaries during hockey games in Canada that include Quebec joual as well as English colloquialisms, a useful but non-existent language, a connecting language. The word pigeon deriving from the old Chinese pronunciation of the English word for business. So a language that came into being as a result of sailors communicating with those living on coasts or along some river delta or the Amazon. Speaking of which, and I will interrupt myself, Marlowe-like, one of the great books on river journeys is Gerontius by James Hamilton Patterson, a novel about the real-life voyage taken by Elgar in his old age up the Amazon. A port accent, then, is a language at the far end of the scale from Henry James and the city of London. And you always imagine you are witnessing it in Conrad, who spent years trolling and loitering the distant coasts of the Far East before eventually coming up the Thames and slipping into the canon of English literature as an unlikely adopted son. But in fact, we never witness that port language and dialogue in his work. We hear it referred to in youth, where the ship waiting to take off on the south coast of England is mocked by other crews, or among the disgraced sailors preparing for trial in God knows what distant place. We feel we have spent all our time with the ship chandlers on harbour streets and reclamation roads, but in fact all those voices are never actually given to us, only distilled through the language of Marlowe. He's our translator, but also our obstacle someone in the way of all that local communion. Marlowe, this rational but intuitive Englishman invented by a Polish sea captain, who now sits safely on a boat on the Thames, interpreting for us all those journeys he took in the far-flung world. The Thames, that now seems so iconic and monolithic, had, according to Peter Ackroyd and other historians of this river, a hundred tributaries in earlier times, such as the Churn, the Windrush, the Kennet, the Way, the Mole, and even more streams have modestly entered and refreshed the Thames. Gatwick Stream, Chelsea Creek, the Fleet, Deptford Creek, Barking Creek, nearly all of which are now buried. Ackroyd also lists the professions along the Thames that in medieval times covered nearly every yard of riverbank, customs officers, hook fishermen, conservators of embankments and weirs, water bailiffs, tide men, draymen, laundresses, 
marine storekeepers, oystermen, toll keepers. Something like 2,000 people worked on the river in the 1700s. Dredgers would search for property that had fallen overboard. Mudlarks would look along the shores at low tide for stray pieces of coal. And we suddenly remember that great opening river chapter in Our Mutual Friend by Dickens, where a body pulled out of the Thames begins a plot. But if we go even further back to a much earlier book, to 54 BC, we find Julius Caesar writing in the Gallic Wars of how, greatly alarmed by the Roman arrival, the Britons placed Cassivellaunus over the whole conduct of the war. Caesar describes how all the Britons dye themselves with wood, which occasions a bluish color, and thereby have a terrible appearance in a fight. From Caesar to Franklin to Lewis and Clark to Darwin, there's this long tradition of writing about imperialistic or commercial or scientific journeys across seas and up great rivers, traveling as one early explorer in South America claimed to have done with my soul between my teeth. And, as has been pointed out, from 1880 until the 1920s, there was a passion among readers for adventurous travel fiction. King Solomon's Mines, The Lost World, Tarzan of the Apes, The Time Machine. So we need to place Conrad's Heart of Darkness in the midst of such popular adventures in order to recognize how different it was, and still is. But to be truthful, most voyages by sea were more benign. Gandhi, for instance, published some journals that he wrote on his 1888 trip to England in a magazine called The Vegetarian. It's a tender recollection, remembering how he lived on the sweetmeats and fruit he had brought on board with him, and how he would play the ship's piano. Up at eight in the morning, he found the arrangements of the water closets astonishing. Quote, we do not get water there, and we are obliged to use pieces of paper. When they reached Plymouth, they saw nothing but fog, 24 hours later, they reached Tilbury, left the steamer, and arrived at the Victoria Hotel in London on the 27th of October at 4 p.m. On his return to India, he is quite sentimental about his attachment to England. Who would not be, he says, London with its teaching institutions, public galleries, museums, theatres, and public parks? Gandhi continues, but meanwhile, how did the vegetarians manage on our ship? Well. There were only two vegetarians, including myself, so I thought it was time for me to poke my nose in. I requested the secretary to give me a quarter of an hour for a short speech on vegetarianism. The secretary obligingly nodded consent to my request. I made great preparations. I well knew that I had to meet a hostile audience. The secretary then asked me to be humorous. I told him that I might be nervous, but humorous I could not be. Gandhi would always be in the best of spirits on his various sea journeys. Riding the pitching seas like a veteran mariner, he selected for himself a corner on the second-class deck where he spent most of the day and the whole of the night under the canopy of the starlit sky. But a few years later, in 1909, on a journey from London to Cape Town, it was a 15-day journey by ship, Gandhi was overcome by a desire to write a book called Hind Swaraj, formulating a plan for Indian independence. It was to be his first book, and this is one of the great stories of any book being written at sea. The obsession was so great 
that he began writing on a ship's stationery with a pencil. The thoughts were coming so furiously that he could not stop writing. When his right hand began to ache, he switched to writing with his left. The book was completed before he reached Cape Town. How one would like to get hold of that manuscript and compare the arguments presented by the left hand and the right hand. His left hand's writing was apparently more legible. In any case, this became a habit all his life. Sometimes, under heavy pressure of work, he wrote on running trains, and again, when his right hand grew tired, he wrote with his left. Some of his famous editorials bore the mark on the train. When I was a little chap, I had a passion for maps. I would look for hours at South America or Africa or Australia and lose myself in all the glories of exploration. At that time, there were many blank spaces on the earth, and when I saw one that looked particularly inviting, I would put my finger on it and say, when I grow up, I will go there. This is the famous paragraph in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And later, as an adult, his narrator Marla will return to the map of Africa. It was not a blank space anymore. It had got filled since my boyhood with rivers and lakes and names. It had become a place of darkness. But there was in it one river especially that you could see on the map resembling an immense snake uncoiled with its head in the sea. Then I remembered there was a big concern, a company for trade on that river. A map clarifies in a glance where the colonial power lies. It shows you immediately what the political perspective of the geographer is, just as we can interpret everything in that paragraph of Marlowe's, the assumption that it must be a place of darkness, and the inherent and about to pounce desire and power of the company that has interest in that river. It reflects the wise remark, to have a great language, you first of all must have a great navy. In a wonderful book called Laws of the Sea, John R. Hale demonstrates how the Athenian navy was able to completely alter history in the Mediterranean, not just in terms of political force, but how as a result it altered and spread democracy and culture and became the hub of all forms of scientific knowledge and trade it will control across that inland sea. In any case, whenever we look down upon a map, what is at the central base of the map is where power is located. You look at North America, and automatically we are used to seeing Canada far away to the north, in the less important distance. Marlowe looks at a map of Africa and sees the white space far away, and so whatever is there is therefore not as significant. We look at the map of Sri Lanka, and Colombo will be at the center at the horizon line of our gaze, while far into the north is Jaffna. In a remarkable new book by T. Sanathanan called The Incomplete Thombu, the book startlingly begins with an almost unrecognizable map of Sri Lanka, until you realize it is upside down, with place names and towns printed the right way up. So Point Pedro and Kodikaman are at our natural eye level while the southern part of the island, where the power and the narrative voice usually reside, are now somewhere to the distant north, in fact, not even on the map. It is off stage. The furthest north, or south, we get is Vabunia. Winslow's Tamil Dictionary defines a thombu as a public register of lands. 
It is a word not used in any country outside Sri Lanka. How many such words were there with the precise local meaning along those riverbanks that Caesar and Speak and Burton and Marlowe traveled past and gazed at from their boats? What we have in a book like The Incomplete Thombu is not a passing glance of a place, but an intimate documenting of properties and lands belonging to Tamil-speaking people prior to single or multiple displacements from their homes in the north of Sri Lanka between 1983 and 2009. The data provided is direct and simple. First, there's an informal drawing by the displaced occupant of what he remembers of the property and where things had been, a well, a fence, a palmyra tree, an office. This is followed by an architectural drawing of the same site based on that informal drawing. Then a quietly devastating statement by the owners of how the property was lost. And then a drawing by the artist based on an image from that statement. But it is T. Sanathanan's reinvented and realigned map at the start of his book that prepares the reader and viewer for this new perspective in order to discover what has really taken place here in the distant Jaffna Peninsula, a land of no rivers, just salt water lagoons and a surrounding sea. I spoke earlier about the lack of reference to art and literary works in Conrad's writing. It was as if he wanted to escape the time period he was in, in order to give us a universal or fable-like quality in his novels. So there is an unmirrored and unesthetic rawness of event and character in his work. And this is also the political problem in a work like Heart of Darkness. King Leopold of Belgium's forced labor policies in the Congo killed over 10 million people in that one territory. And between 1902 to 1913, this was known worldwide as the major atrocity of that era. Adam Hothschild, in his book King Leopold's Ghosts, speaks of all this and points out that Conrad's novella does not mention Leopold, or name the Congo, or even Africa. The story is therefore permanently universal, but also permanently evasive. But Hothschild says that Conrad still revealed the basic moral issue of race and imperialism. He perceived, Hothschild says, more than he knew. Whatever Conrad subliminally revealed of himself in the novella, the slim book he wrote is a stake in the heart, unforgotten, unforgiven. And yet, whatever appalls us about Conrad's subconscious racism in Heart of Darkness, and this was an absolute product of his age, when Marlowe turns suddenly to his listeners on the boat on the Thames and says, and this also has been one of the dark places of the earth, I was thinking of very old times when the Romans first came here, 1900 years ago, the other day, he is also twisting around the map of perspectives. It is hardly surprising that one of the passengers on the boat will respond to his remark with, try to be civil. The light rain was still falling that late afternoon in Tilbury as my friend's shallow skiff continued to make its way west towards the city. We stopped for a while at the Pelican Stairs for a snack and then went on. The sun set, the dusk fell on the stream and lights began to appear along the shore, and farther west on the upper reaches, the place of the monstrous town was still marked ominously on the sky, a brooding gloom in sunshine, 
a lurid glare under the stars. And this also, said Marlowe suddenly, has been one of the dark places of the earth. I arrived just a few days ago and climbed up into the steamship perched above the Thames. There was an English rain all night on the Roi de Belge. I had brought a handful of books, unlike Marlowe. There was, of course, a slim paperback by Conrad and Caesar's Gallic Wars, where he watched the blue-bodied Britons on the shore of the Thames regarding him, so he was a foreigner, the alien, just as Elgar was going down the Amazon in his old age. I had brought whatever geological data I could find about the Thames, some sea journals by Gandhi, and the recently published book set a few thousand miles away in Sri Lanka, an artistic and archival work involved with the mapping of another supposedly far-flung darkness. And for some of the time while staying on the boat, I thought back to Joseph Conrad and his friend Ford Maddox Ford in 1899, landlocked at Pent Farm in Postling, Kent, mulling over and carefully editing those first and last paragraphs of Heart of Darkness, which depict the Thames, that are the same landscape, but not quite. For London, the greatest town on earth at the start of the story is seen by the end as a somber waterway with black banks of clouds and a river leading into the heart of an immense darkness. This manuscript was going to be just a small novel published a few months later in Blackwood's magazine about a river journey. Great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.